Hello and welcome to High Heels and Heartache. I am your host, Kendall Ann Combs. Thank you so much for tuning in. On this episode, I chat with Julie Sweet about the phenomenon that is known as the perfect victim. She defines what a quote-unquote perfect victim is. We discuss uh, the societal pressures that have created this narrative of that a victim or a survivor has to be perfect, uh, but not too perfect. <laughs> we also discuss how it affects survivors, and most importantly, uh, we chat about how, how we can dismantle this narrative that in order for a survivor or a victim to be believed and supportive, they have to be quote-unquote perfect. And this is the first international guest that I've had on the show, so I'm very excited about that. So, coming up, Julie Sweet. Okay, welcome back to High Heels and Heartache. On the line with me today, I have Julie Sweet. Hi, Julie. Hi, Kendall. How are you? I'm good. I am so excited because you are my first international episode. (laughs) All the way from Australia. (laughs) All the way. You're talking to me from the future. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I'm just here. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. So you're a psychotherapist and you work a lot with people who are dealing with trauma. So what led you to mental health? Well, I knew that I was following a career pathway that wasn't serving me for a very long time. Since leaving school, I really just fell into roles and worked in different industries and whilst they were serving the purpose they weren't fulfilled for me they weren't fulfilling and I knew that innately yet it took me until my early 30s to be able to study and retrain and go down a completely different pathway and really I guess not discover my dream but step into my dream and my dream was always to work in this space in this industry I think I knew that deep within from a very young age and yet because of many factors I chose not to look at that until I was ready and that that really began with my own personal work and my own therapy and my psychotherapist at the time spoke to me around my fear and the barrier of starting again and going down a different career and retraining and doing something that was going to no doubt rock my world, yet also bring me to the place I sit today, which is the the space I always wanted to embody. Well, I'm sure that your clients are so happy that you made that change and that you're you're helping them work through the things in their life that can be a little bit challenging. Yeah, I think what you said earlier is, is true. It's really trauma. And as broad as that is, what underpins so many symptoms and presentations is trauma whether Mm -hmm. it's you know adverse childhood experiences whether it's single incident trauma whether it's compound complex trauma we are human beings trying to work through that and it's very brave and courageous for people to step into the space of therapy and to introspectively work on that so I I'm in awe of my clients it's a privilege and an honor to be able to sit with them alongside of them throughout their journey well, it makes it easy when we have someone who's empathetic and caring like you are. It makes it a lot easier to open up 
I, I, yeah. I found you because I saw that you were quoted in an article about something that I've always really struggled with um, myself in, in my own feelings, as well as sort of seeing the way it's portrayed in the media. So mm-hmm. we're going to use the word victim here, but some people use the word survivor. So it's kind of mm-hmm. both here. So we're going to talk about the phenomenon of the perfect victim. Mm-hmm. And when I'm saying it, I'm making <laughs> quotation marks. When you're listening, you can't hear, but I'm making quotation marks to Julie. So yes. can you describe the phenomenon that is known as the perfect victim? Yes, I come up a lot against this and this concept, not only professionally, personally, I'm also faced and confronted with many people generally falling into this misconception and belief. It plays out in the media heavily here in Australia. We have this consensus and this unconscious bias whereby we believe the victim must prove that they have been victimised. The survivor must prove that they have experienced the trauma that the onus is on the victim to sell to us, the audience, and prove to us that they have experienced what it may be that they've experienced. All the while, they must be perfect in doing so. They must look perfect. They must speak perfectly. They must present with perfection. They must have a memory that is beyond our memories. However, when they are traumatised, they are held to a standard, again, of perfection. It's a concept that needs to be dismantled and it goes back to the perfect victim in the criminal justice system looked upon as having to, again, sit in that embodiment of presentation, being articulate, being highly intelligent, being highly educated, being able to keep a timeline of the beginning, middle and end, all the while also having to prove through DNA, through reporting, through a a standard, again, that's held not to the average layperson, yet a victim, it's very comfortably held to them again to have to say throughout the trauma and throughout what happened, I'm able to still tick every box and be perfect. And this goes, you know, this extends to the victim being looked upon as have they ingested any substance, have they been drinking at the time of the trauma, do they post on social media, what, what is it they speak about, what do they look like, who do they associate with, what's their demographic, what's their socioeconomic area, Um have they really, again, I spoke about this in an article, it's this judgment of do I look at them and do I like them? Mm. Are they relatable? Do I believe them? Mm-hmm. And with the perfect victim phenomenon, what's interesting is, again, the onus is placed upon the victim. We don't look at the perpetrator. We don't ask someone, why do you abuse your partner? We're very comfortable looking at the victim and saying, why do you stay? Mm-hmm. Why don't you leave? How come when you were sexually assaulted you didn't report that to the police immediately? 
Why did you go home and shower and change your clothes? Why did you not confide in to your friend, family, colleague at work what you had experienced and endured? We don't take into account through a trauma-informed lens what that person is experiencing. Yeah. And yet we're very happy to sit in the perfect victim phenomenon, which, again, the perfect victim has to come forward at the perfect time, there has to be witnesses, there has to be for her a third party, there has to be no presentation of hysteria, you know, anger. There's so many criteria that's placed upon the victim that they need to uphold. Mm-hmm. And again, as I said earlier, it doesn't exist. It needs to be dismantled. It's an ideal that sets the survivor and the victim up for failure. It's a burden that they carry and there needs to be an unburdening. Once mm-hmm. again, the emphasis needs to go toward the perpetrator, not the person who is the victim or survivor. Yeah. I think it's so interesting, too, that you brought up the memory thing. Because, trauma memory. Yeah, because those of us who are informed about trauma, we know it does crazy things to your memory. Like, I'm one of those people who, of my abuse, I have things that, like, I remember every single little detail of moments, mm-hmm. of hours, of events. Mm-hmm. And then I have full weeks that I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. And when I learned, oh, okay, that was my brain. Like, mm-hmm. that was that was my brain kind of working through the trauma and, and how it was protecting itself. Then, then I gave myself more grace about that. But yes. that's really hard for, you know, those people that don't know what trauma does to your memory to kind of, okay, let's reconcile that that this this survivor, this victim, they might not remember everything, but they might remember the details of a lot of things. Again, really well said, Kendall, and imagine them coming up through the family law court or the criminal justice system when you don't have a trauma-informed magistrate or judge, or you have clinicians that you're working with or government agencies you're working with who aren't trauma-informed. Imagine trying to once more speak to what's happened to you. You're asked to then chronologically put down pen to paper, beginning, middle, end, and when you're unable to, the seed of doubt then begins. Mm -hmm. And then you're cross-examined. And then people again say, why don't you report? Why don't you go through the courts? Why is it that you're not going to prosecute? Why don't you attempt to at least have the perpetrator held to account? When we look at that really dangerous unconscious bias of the perfect victim, and you speak to it really well when you said, I remember things so clearly, so accurately, and clients talk to me about experiencing it like it just happened yesterday. Then throughout sessions, when we talk about it, they'll say, I have a mind blank. Sorry, I've got brain fog. Sorry, I'm unable to access that memory. And again, that in itself is healthy. That's a natural response. Now, in therapy, it's safe whereby there will be no agenda, there'll be no probing, there'll be no trying to tease that out. Yet in the criminal justice system or family law court, that is looked at as a deficit. Mm -hmm. This is where the victim or the survivor will be 
balanced. Mm-hmm. And we know through the brain and trauma memory and the access that we have to certain memories and the access we don't, flashbacks, smell, a trigger, you know, the trauma will knock on the door and ask us to look at that. However, we're not in control of if and when that occurs. Yeah, I find that um, with, and I'm, I'm sure that you would be able to tell me why, like the sexual abuse that I endured, like when you say the trauma knocks on the door, sometimes it knocks when I I am not even thinking about it at all. I'll just be on a walk or even very relaxed and I will be like, Ooh, I will have a memory that just jars me still all these years later. So, again, a really valid point, and I'm glad you raised it. When I worked at the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse here in Australia, we looked at when we were able to hear the victim's voice and sit with the survivor, they would speak to us around disclosure and their first-time disclosure and whether or not they were believed. And they would speak to, again, looking at internalising what they've experienced due to shame and many other contributing factors that silence them. And often what would happen is when they would speak to us around a disclosure of the abuse they'd experienced, child sexual abuse in this case, if the person that they disclosed to believed them, that then supported them feeling more comfortable, if I can use that word, to perhaps disclose to another person. Mm. And yet in saying that, if they're not believed, you can imagine how reluctant and how a barrier would be formed by them then wanting to disclose again. So believing a victim and survivor is absolutely imperative. I cannot emphasise that anymore around believing and hearing and seeing a victim And also when you speak about the memory and the flashbacks and how trauma does then revisit us, what can happen is victims and survivors spoke to us throughout that period of the commission and disclosed to us that when they would speak of what happened, it was fragmented. It was in a way that was very disordered sometimes. So their memory wasn't to be questioned it was just when they would articulate or disclose or present it would be in a distorted way which is completely acceptable and again natural what happens though in relation to flashbacks or triggers or smells on average the research showed us that it would take a female two decades to disclose their child sexual abuse that's over 20 years wow difference between the male and female was around two years. That was the only difference. We're talking around 20 and 22 years for men and women, and I only use those genders just for ease when we're talking in this space, two decades for them to disclose first-time disclosure. And we spoke to survivors and victims around that long period of time, and, again, it was the internalisation It was the shame. It was the, hold on a second, I've got a memory coming back, but I can't really make sense of it. So what I'll do is I'll bury it. I'll internalise it. I'm not going to speak about this. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. And also 
if the if the perpetrator is known to us, you can mm. imagine then the family system, the network, the implications of disclosure, and what happens to people surrounding the victim and survivor. Once more, I want to again emphasize that is not the responsibility of the victim. It again lies at the feet of the perpetrator. There's You're only so one right. person at fault. You're so right. And again, when we talk about the perfect victim, that you feel like um like a, a responsibility that like you are causing harm to your abuser. And when when you really like when even when I say this, like I'm like kind of like chuckling right now because when I say it, it sounds like Kendall Ann, what are you talking? You're causing harm to your abuser? Like, come on. But that's really the way it feels to you. And then we get blamed for it. Well, how come you didn't report it sooner? Why didn't you do all of these things? And I love it when people said, if that happened to me, I would have. Oh, no, no, no. You don't know what you would have done. You don't know until you're in it what you would have done. I couldn't agree more. So, you know, it's very easy to sit on the sideline and say, this is what I would do. Or the word should gets used a lot in therapy. And I really bring mindfulness to that word with clients it's very punitive and it's very parental and it's the finger pointing. No one does know how they will respond when they do have that subjective lived experience. And, again, when you speak to people who have experienced sexual abuse, trauma, they speak to wanting it to be something that they try to avoid looking at until they are either forced by way of, again, what we've spoken about when trauma comes knocking or they look at that for other reasons whereby they find that their life is sadly unravelling and they do turn toward and then do look at the resources that are available to them and step toward them. That's very difficult again. And people, again, expressing that blanket view of, oh, well, you can call this number oh, well, you can go to this resource. Oh, well, how come you don't use this centre? How come you're not sharing that with your friends and family? It, it's that like, a belief that we hold, again, toward the victim needs to or should be accessing everything available to them, should be leaving, should end the relationship for the sake of the children. I hear that a lot with clients who choose and choose so privately to remain within the relationship because they're fearful and scared that if they do exit the relationship, what will happen to the children? What will happen if the court does grant shared care? They're finding that they are scared in the relationship, looking to protect their children day in, day out. What happens when they separate and they have a week off whereby they're not accessing their children? They fear who will protect my child. Yeah, that's and they're terrifying. placed again. Yeah, it absolutely is terrifying. So, and- for us to be a perfect survivor or a perfect victim, we have to speak the right way. We have to have the right level of education. We have to look the right way. We have had to access the proper resources. We have had to have the perfect memory. Let's see what else we've had to tell people as soon as it happened the first time and been articulate in it. We have had to do nothing that maybe might. We have to be wearing the right thing, always be kind and sweet, or it 
it becomes our fault. We are no longer the perfect survivor. We are no longer the perfect victim. So what societal pressures cause that phenomenon? Well, you spoke also about the good girl and being nice. This goes back to grassroots. This is also cultural. This is also a systemic issue around being nice. So don't wear anything that's provocative and don't wear your hair like that and don't wear makeup like that. And also when someone is rude or hostile towards you, be nice, be good. Don't respond with hostility and aggression and anger. No one wants to see, and again, I've got inverted commas coming up here, no one wants to see an angry Mm -hmm. person, especially Mm -hmm. an angry girl, woman, young lady. So, again, we have these projections that are placed upon us to fit a certain mould and to fit perfectly in a box that society is very comfortable with us sitting in. And I say us as in a gender just for this particular topic because if a woman is aggressive, if a woman is assertive, they are then judged and deemed an angry young person, a, a, a volatile, aggressive woman, you know, she was so aggressive and angry when I was just asking a really nice question. All I was trying to do was introduce myself and she responded with such hostility. You know, this bias of the woman needs to make sure she's nice and when she responds or when she chooses to step away from that proposal, that person violating a boundary, She has to make sure that she responds, she doesn't react, she does so perfectly, nicely, kindly. Imagine, again, there's a a book called The Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker and he talks about imagine if, and I won't swear on the podcast, but a woman... Oh, you can swear here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, when a boundary is violated, and he gave a really great example, um, and we have that feeling within our body. We already, you know, have that somatic response. When we learn to trust our body and when we hear it and we receive the message it's giving us, we're in a very different position. It's when we sit there and go, hold on a second, I've got a charge and a trigger here. When that man was just asking me if he could help me, you know, pick up my groceries and walk them home with me. Why am I triggered? Why am I anxious? Don't be like that. Be really nice. Be really polite. Thank him so much. Invite him in, ask him to come in because he's, you know, walked home with us and, and carried our groceries for us. So I don't want to be rude and say, as Gavin DeBecker turned around and said, you know, to a live audience, imagine if a woman turned around and said, fuck off. Don't touch my groceries. I don't need you to walk me home. Leave me alone. That's sending then and there, in the here and now, a very loud message to that person. And people speak and then go, well, what if that person was genuinely nice? Again, going back to be nice, err on the side of caution first. Do not be rude. Do not be aggressive. Place yourself in danger as long as you're nice. Instead, we want to go back to what's happening for you in your body. Mm-hmm. Honour that, respect that. If you get it wrong, you get it wrong. That's Okay. But guess what? If you get it right, you've protected yourself. Exactly. More, I don't want to put it on the victim or the survivor that they have to protect themselves. I don't want it to be, again, their responsibility. 
But what I'm saying is that nice, good girl concept, it's so societal and it's so systemic. And I think it's changing a little bit. I, I speak to clients who are parenting from grassroots and they're talking about having these conversations with their small children, boys, girls, coming up through a really different generation where they are talking about their emotions, they are talking about their feelings, they are talking about the consequences to behaviour. It's changing and I see that and it's wonderful. I've been a psychotherapist for a decade and it's changing. Parenting is changing and it's it's wonderful. I'm excited about the generation that's coming up. I think they hold the key to so much fundamental change and I think parenting itself now is changing and it's wonderful. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, I, I love that you say that because if, like one thing about the perfect victim is if, you know, you've ever told someone to fuck off <laughs> and then I, someone who wants to judge you knows that, mm-hmm. then, it, then it becomes this, oh, you were like asking for your abuse because you're not demure. If you were a demure, nice girl, then that man wouldn't have done that to you. It was, it's because you are assertive. You, you set boundaries. You like, it's almost, again, it's your fault that that abuse happened to you when it is not your fault. And this goes back to, you know, with child sexual abuse, for example, grooming. Mm -hmm. As an adult, you know, we think that grooming may not apply, yet grooming can be by way of those really, really covert, subtle, abusive tactics that go along with stalking, that go along with coercive control, that go along with isolation and dividing the victim and survivor from their family, from their friends. Each and every time that can be encountered with, but it's really lovely, and I say he just for this mm-hmm. particular topic, And he texts 10 times a day just to tell me how much he loves me. And he said to me that my best friend wasn't treating me well. And these subtle tactics that are to, again, be responded to with kindness, loveliness, niceness, not assertiveness, not aggression, not anger, not confrontation, not conflict, not questioning, curiosity, all of that's off the table. I remember like when my abuser would say something negative about the people in my life, like I'm one of those people, like I can say whatever I want about the people that I love because <laughs> I love them and I'm fiercely loyal. <laughs> but if someone else says something about them, I am like, absolutely not. Like you haven't earned the right <laughs> to say anything negative. Yeah. And I remember my abuser would turn that back around on me. And if I would say things like, you will not speak poorly about my mother. No, you will not speak poorly about my best friend. Then it was always like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I just, I'm just trying to look out for you because mm-hmm. I am the person that has your best interest at heart. And you don't see that because you're too subjective because mm-hmm. you're in it. And I'm objective. So like mm-hmm. that whole thing, I absolutely agree. And again, it it was like, I wasn't nice enough when I was saying, don't talk about people in my family. Like, should I have been like, um, hi, excuse me. I would really appreciate it if you didn't call my best friend a bitch like that. I would really prefer that. Like, no, if you call my best friend a bitch, I'm going to say, don't you dare do that ever again. And we're talking about boundaries. 
you might know, especially in America there, there's a, a wonderful person who works in this space called Terry Cole and she speaks about boundaries and boundary destroyers and boundary violators. So when you just gave that example then, that's the same message but said very differently. And you can do that with a boundary. You can be very clear and assertive or it can be a really soft boundary. Mm -hmm. But again, you get to be able to determine that. You get to be able to say, no, stop. Or you get to be able to say, would you mind, please? That's a really, really, when we sit there and ask for permission, that boundary's blurred. Yeah. We can still be assertive and clear and firm and have our message conveyed. Mm-hmm. It's then up to the individual who hears that boundary to choose to respect that or violate that. Mm-hmm. But again, if we haven't ever had boundaries modeled to us, or if we don't know what a boundary is, trying to do that as an adult, as a female, as a victim, very challenging. It really is. It really is. So, other than that sort of boundary step, how does the idea of having to be the perfect victim affect survivors of domestic violence? So from my professional standing, what happens in my therapy space is I see clients extremely reluctant to speak about their trauma and come forward and report to police and go through the judicial system and hold their perpetrator to account. I hear great hesitancy and fear, and rightly so. So the media is not lost on them. Friends and families' experiences are not lost on them. Their own experience is not lost on them, and they become fearful. And ultimately, all they want is to feel safe. They want to leave a relationship whereby they or their children are in danger, and are too scared to do so because of what happens. So we've got different wheels that we look at in the domestic violence space that show what we were speaking about earlier around the cycle of abuse. And the wheels talk about a secure functioning relationship of equality that's non-violence. They have the components of respect and trust and honesty, non-threatening behaviour within that cycle and that wheel of equality. That's a secure functioning relationship. We also have the wheel of power and control, which Mm -hmm. talks about the intimidation, the emotional abuse, the coercive threats, the economic and financial abuse. They're the elements, to name a few, within that wheel. When a client is aware of power and control, they've experienced it within the traumatic and, and abusive relationship, Ultimately, of course, they want to move toward equality, yet often that's unattainable for them. It's not something that they are able to ever acquire because of the dynamic and the fact that the perpetrator has not and will not show signs of changing their behaviour. So what happens is there's a third wheel called post-separation abuse and clients step into this unknowingly. Yet when they hear about other people's experiences of that, that causes them to become fearful. So post-separation abuse goes into counter-parenting if they've got children. 
and alienation allegations and alienation, parental alienation and neglectful or abusive parenting, all ties that bind the victim to the perpetrator because of the fact that they want to protect their children. And financial abuse through the court system, legal abuse, I see that it's very prevalent with my clients. Harassment and stalking, isolation, coercive control, all of that are the aspects and components to the post-separation abuse. And, again, people come to, for example, my clients come to me and say, my friend came to me the other day and said, I bet you regret leaving. I bet you you wish you just stayed. Now look what's happened to your children. What's happening to you. And you can imagine the first thing that comes up is guilt. Mm Mm-hmm. And then regret. And then, of course, what am I doing? I'm a year into this criminal proceeding and I'm losing. Mm-hmm. And I haven't even appeared yet. So you can imagine how scared and fearful people are. So I see in a lot of clients that present and who want to work with me around the, the abuse they've experienced, fearful of what's going to happen. And they're acutely aware, again, of the greatest risk to self and children is upon exiting. Mm -hmm. So that in itself is very challenging for a lot of victims and survivors. When they have left and they do come to therapy and they do sit before me, a lot of them speak about the double bind and the inner conflict they're experiencing of wanting to hold the perpetrator accountable, yet scared to because of the the judicial system, Mm -hmm. scared to provoke, scared to fly a red flag, scared to then alert the perpetrator to their right of, for example, enforcing an AVO. Is this going to antagonise the perpetrator? It's best I say nothing and lay low. All the while feeling scared. That happened to me when I left my abuser and he was stalking me and he was making new email addresses I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes 20 a day. And he was just coming at me and writing me crazy things like he was going to commit suicide and all of that. I I needed protection, but mm-hmm. I was afraid that actually getting the protection was going to provoke and instigate something worse than what I was experiencing. And it was really troubling and difficult for me when I was finally like, I just need that piece of paper. Like, I'm... At this point, I I just want this to end. And if this might help it, God, I hope it does. I hope it doesn't provoke him. But I remember having conversations with my friends and with my mom and being like, is this a, am I making a bad choice here? Like, is this choice to get the legal system involved going to kill me? I, I hear this time and time again. So I work with a lot of victims of crime. And they speak very similarly to what you've vulnerably disclosed and fear that if they exercise their rights, firstly, what will happen? Will the perpetrator escalate? And secondly, what protection is that piece of paper? What happens when that piece of paper, in fact, doesn't serve as a protector? Mm -hmm. What happens when it actually then... For example, an AVO 
is violated and isn't abided by and the victim goes to the police and reports that, what then happens? Mm -hmm. So you're left again feeling fearful, feeling unsafe. And when we go back to being the perfect victim, like in order to get one of those orders, like you have to re-traumatize yourself because it's not like McDonald's. You don't just go through a drive-thru and be like, hey, you know what? I would love a a protection order against this person. Like I had to tell my story like five times to five different people. I had to sit in a judge's chamber with just me and the judge. And as as someone who's been like terrified of authority my whole life, Mm -hmm. like I was like, oh, like shaking. I was sweating. I thought I was going to have a panic attack. Because, because again, I thought in my mind, I, I really thought like I shouldn't have worn jeans to come get this restraining order. I should have dressed up more. I should have put on makeup. I sh- and again, like that, it all comes back to feeling like we have to present perfectly in order to protect ourselves. And you raise a really valid point. I've also had clients say to me. I dressed really well. My hair and makeup was, again, in inverted commas, perfect. I spoke really well. I presented my case. My note keeping was exceptional. I did everything right. And I need to tell you something. I'm really scared it worked against me. I'm scared they, in fact, looked at me and thought, you're not a victim. You are wealthy. You're attractive. You present very well as if this has even happened to you mm-hmm. you're fearful and you're telling me that you're fearful he said she said go away until something happens and then come back to us so I've had clients actually try to live up to the perfect victim phenomenon and fail again because they almost felt like they were presenting too perfectly oh, and it worked against them so it's this like you're you're damned if you do and you're damned yeah. if you don't. Like either they, they you, you have to be, you that again, you have to be actually perfect. You have to straddle the line that you can speak, that you're well articulate, but that you don't sound rehearsed. And any victim, we can all tell you when you have to go up in front mm-hmm. of a courtroom of people, mm-hmm. like you have rehearsed what you are going to say mm-hmm. in your mind because it is terrifying to yes. be in that courtroom but i i absolutely see why people would feel like oh i was i was like too good at it i was not emotional enough i should have cried i should have i absolutely yeah. can understand why people would feel that way yeah and then you're judged you didn't look marginalized you didn't look like you were in a precarious position you didn't look like you were fearful for your life and so, so. And obviously you're fine yeah It's so unfair. It is. And once more, you notice we're focusing on the victim. You're right. We have not even looked at the abuse, the impact upon the family system, the exposure to intimidation, threat, emotional, mental, physical violence. And by the way, again, it doesn't need to be physical. I know that sounds so redundant to say, I say it because some people still, again, speak of, oh, can you show me what happened? Do you have any proof? Are there any bruises? Do you have any marks? And that discounts the victim 
in that moment then and there mm-hmm. discounts everything they've experienced if it hasn't been physical. Mm-hmm. And God forbid, if you say it was physical and you don't have the pictures to back it up as well, right. then there's another way that you messed it up. You should have known mm-hmm. better. You should have known to take pictures of yourself immediately. It's just, it's in, it's an impossible standard. It is. It is. So that just kind of goes along with what, so when we're talking about the perfect, bl- the perfect victim, what is victim blaming? So victim blaming is, again, what you spoke to earlier around was I wearing the right clothes and you were speaking about it in a different context. But victim blaming is, again, we look at substance abuse or alcohol or how the victim presented or was the victim placing, again, herself in a position where she was exposed to something that caused her to be in danger? Mm-hmm. And we look at blaming the victim. If the victim wasn't wearing that, if the victim wasn't intoxicated, if the victim said no, well, then you know what? That would be okay. But the victim didn't do any of that. The victim was wearing clothes that I find inappropriate. Judgment again. The victim looked like I found someone who was, you know, again, dressed in a way, looked in a way that I found offensive. The victim was drinking. Why would someone drink and be intoxicated and then blame someone else if they blacked out and then all of a sudden remember that they woke and somebody was sexually assaulting them? Victim blaming is exactly as it says, blaming the victim for the abuse that was perpetrated upon them. It happens with sexual assault. It happens with domestic violence. It happens even in family violence whereby people will then blame the child. Oh, my God. That child, that child is hyperactive that child is very naughty that child is misbehaving therefore the parent needs to hit the child the child needed to be smacked Mm -hmm. we're not looking at the parent Mm -hmm. we're not looking at the skills or lack thereof or tools or strategies that the parent didn't employ we're looking straight at the child being naughty and uncontrollable Mm -hmm. similar with victim blaming what did the victim do to result in that incident to occur. So they kind of go hand in hand, the idea of being a perfect victim and victim blaming. Like if you weren't perfect in every single way, but not too perfect, then (laughs) it's your fault. And they do, they are intertwined because when we look at victim blaming, we're setting the victim up similar to how we look at the phenomenon of the perfect victim. And, again, we get very confronted with society as a whole. It's very confronted with then looking at someone and perhaps they were intoxicated but holding both, sitting Mm -hmm. with a victim was intoxicated, okay, maybe not what I would have done, but let me suspend judgment for a moment and understand that person was intoxicated. Does it then warrant and is it acceptable for that victim to then be abused. Mm -hmm. So let's actually move away from the polarising, rigid, inflexible mindset and let's sit in growth and openness and a non-judgmental mindset of understanding. Empathy is big, yet if we're not able to relate or even imagine, it may not have happened to me, but what if my sister said it happened to me? What if my child said it happened to me? 
What if my mother said it happened to me? Mm-hmm. Would I question my mother? Would I say, well, what were you doing? Why were you there? How late was it? Why didn't you call someone? Or would I hold my mum? Would I talk to my mum? Would I let my mum cry? I, I see in that. Yeah. I remember one time um, I told, uh, uh, along these same lines, one time I told one of my therapists, I was like, again, struggling with this whole idea of a perfect victim and really sort of blaming myself. You know, like sometimes what, and this is, this is hard for people to kind of understand, but like when you're being abused that badly, like sometimes you will yell back at the person, not great stuff Um, (laughs) because you are in this horrible cycle. And I remember I said that to a therapist one time and he looked at me and he said, Kendall Ann, do you believe being strangled was the correct consequence for saying what you said? And it was like, oh, like light bulb moment. Like, no, there's, there's ne- strangling someone. It shouldn't be the consequence of anything. And he was like, you got to reframe all of that thinking. None of this is your fault. The only person at fault is your abuser. Couldn't agree more. And not only victim blaming are we looking at other people, you just again raised such an important aspect of victim blaming. The victim's already blaming themselves. Mm-hmm. Why did I fight back then? Why did I shout? Why did I mirror and match that person's aggression, anger, hostility? We again then look at, I'm at fault. Had I been quiet? Had I said nothing? I wouldn't have had that person's hands on my throat. Because that's what your abuser has taught you almost from the beginning, that it's it's you that decides how I treat you. What you don't know is being perfect, it's, it's going to change from minute to minute. So you're never going to be perfect. There's always going to be a reason to control you. But it's, you know, like you do absolutely blame yourself for other people's behavior. And take responsibility for it. Absolutely. So there's a, devalu- there's a devaluing in victim blaming. And you can see the, when we join the dots, there's a devaluing in abuse. So we are devaluing the individual. The individual is being devalued in the abuse and we're also devaluing ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because we do question, I needed to be quiet. Was I too loud? If I had have done this, so what I'll do is I'll have everything perfect now. I'll be perfect where I can't be blamed. Mm-hmm. And yet they will still blame themselves generally or someone else will or the perpetrator will. Mm-hmm. So your therapist was completely correct in saying what he said. And that's why we need to shift the focus. I know I keep saying that, but this cannot light the feet of the victim. It needs to go to understanding, and this is why working with perpetrators is so important, yet it's a space where not a lot of clinicians want to work within, and I understand and respect that, yet what happens is if we don't work with perpetrators, we also lose the opportunity to be able to look at real fundamental behavioural change. That's true. And that's also, you know, that's another podcast, but that's also (laughs) really important and relevant to look at as well. Yeah. 
So I am the daughter of a feminist and I'm one of those, uh, let's burn down the patriarchy type of ladies. <laughs> um, so, so I always kind of go back to, okay, how, when we're talking about society and sort of the way, like how does toxic masculinity, how is that reinforced in victim blaming? I think, again, the dots can be joined there. When we spoke earlier about grassroots, I think this is modelling. I think we're carrying, you know, when we're in the room with a client, we're not just in the room with a client. We're in the room with the client's parents and the client's parents' parents. So we've got three generations there. We've got grandparents, parents, and the individual. So you can imagine when we talk about toxic masculinity, that doesn't arrive with the individual then and there. It is often generational trauma, modelling, information passed down through the behavioural channels of what we saw. Now, when we have a circuit breaker and someone who, who is able to change and does look at this was done to me, therefore I don't want to do that, that's different. We can break the cycle. But more often than not, what I do here is that happened to me and I was okay, I turned out fine. So I'll do the same to my child. Mm -hmm. Well, how fine are you? How's that working for you? How is your anger? How is your relationship with your partner? Mm -hmm. How is your parenting style? Are you ruling with fear? Or are you a fair leader? Mm -hmm. You know, again, that needs to be questioned. So I think toxic, toxic masculinity is to be looked at within the framework of generations behind that individual that we're looking at then and there yeah so this is multi-generational and I think education is so important psychosocial information is so important knowledge is so important research is so important giving people tools and strategies to work with because often again with hitting and smacking children the act itself is for many people shocking and yet we're not then trying to have the individual who's smacking and hitting their child given tools and strategies to do something different. Imagine mm. if we resourced up that person, re-educated that person, showed that parent there's another technique that you can use. Do you know what it is? Firstly, it starts with you and self-regulation. Then it's co-regulation. Do you mm -hmm. know what co-regulation is when you're a parent with a child? No, you don't. Let me show you. Let me demonstrate. Let me give you a source whereby you can access. How do I co-regulate when I'm dysregulated? Mm -hmm. This is all information and education that people require to be able to look at changing those fundamental negative behaviours that are damaging generations. So I think toxic masculinity really doesn't sit just purely with the individual that's before you. I think it goes back there's an imprint and a blueprint within ourselves and the previous generations. That's a great point. And it's so true. It's so true. Like you're, you're the way you are because of what you learned kind of like when you were very little in your house. So if you were kind of taught like men rule and men rule with an iron fist and, and women should be demure and they should just, you know, abdicate to men and all of that, then that would be, as a man, what you would believe when you go out into the world. Absolutely. So you think of our earliest relationship is with our primary caregiver. The same-sex parent has the greater influence, research shows. 
So you can imagine a little boy having behaviour that negatively impacts himself or his family around him, modelled to him by, say, for example, his father. Mm -hmm. That little boy, of course, can as an adult change his behaviour. He is responsible for his behaviour, no doubt. Yet we're looking at that little boy and understanding something well before we look at the adult behaviour. Where did this come from? Mm -hmm. What happened? Bruce Perry talks about trauma and it's about, again, what happened to you. And when we ask that curiously and compassionately, we're able to understand, oh, okay, so when your father got angry, he would become really volatile and explosive and throw things around the house. I can understand you thought that was normal. I can understand you thought that happened in every household. Of course, you now believe that that's going to happen here in this relationship. So you can imagine how confusing that would be as well to then understand, hold on a second, this isn't going to be healthy and conducive to a secure functioning relationship. I need help. Yeah. And that's, I, that's- I like it that you, um, you called them circuit breakers, people yeah. that, that will stop that because I have, I have a couple friends who I've known them for, you know, decades and both of I can think of two of them. They, two of them told me that one of their big things when they had sons was that they were going to choose that they were going to teach them that might doesn't equal right. And to me, it. it was like, we had never like discussed anything from their past before, but them saying that I was like, okay, like they're, there's something in there where you are like, Mm-mm, this stops with my generation. My household will be different than the one that I grew up in. Love it. And that's also going to be determined as to the pair bonding that that person's chosen. Now, that your friend could be a single parent, but let's say they're not. They need to also ensure when they're raising, and they're raising men, let's be really clear, they're not raising a boy, you're raising mm-hmm. a man. Mm-hmm. When she's raising her man, we need to be on the same page with the, the same-sex parent, the, the man, the partner that we've chosen if we're going to talk about heterosexual relationships for this particular point. Is I'm on, I know what I want. I know that when I have a son, this is how I want to be able to share with him the traits and qualities that caused him to be a very wonderful and empathetic and compassionate man however is my partner also displaying and demonstrating those qualities and those values because we also need the parents to be on the same page and I'm not talking about avoiding conflict and having disagreements that's healthy and that's part of it but we also need to have that modeled monkey see monkey do Mm -hmm. a mum can influence no doubt and speak to I don't want aggression. I want words. Share with me how you're feeling. Anger is acceptable and unhealthy anger isn't. Yet what if the male partner is demonstrating anger and aggression? Children will look at behaviour well before words. So I love where where your friend's coming from. I absolutely love it. And it's inspirational. Mm -hmm. And that's the hope. That's what I was speaking to earlier. The new parents coming through with these children they get a chance for a really clean slate and a wonderful canvas to just begin and yeah. rebuild. Yeah. So that goes along with 
kind of my next question, what changes do we need to make in our society to, to stop villainizing victims, to stop asking that a victim or a survivor be absolutely perfect in all facets of their lives in order to, number one, be believed, and number two, be protected? So I think it can start really, really small. And I think if we were just responsible for our responses and reactions to someone disclosing to us what they were experiencing, whether it be a work colleague, a friend, a family member, suspending any judgment, suspending any urge or need to have questions that, you know, may be irrelevant but serve us, really actively listening, being present, being able to hear the person, believing the person, allowing the person to share with them what they're experiencing and holding space for the person. Then we go and move toward understanding. Now, also in understanding, respecting whether the person that's disclosing to us what's happened to them wants us to purely walk alongside them and support them or wants us to help support them and advocate for them and also walk alongside them in trying to seek justice. Mm -hmm. So starting really small, beginning to listen, beginning to understand, beginning to empathise, believing. I love that because even as an advocate, I had to learn when people told me their story that now I say, do you want me to just hold space for you here in this moment? Or do you want me to help? You get to choose. Great question. And that's just really something as question. small as that. It, Another it, great question is what do you need? Mm-hmm. Now, some people may not know what they need, and that's okay. But when you ask those two questions you just asked, that's also placing the person in a position whereby if they're able to enunciate it, they're going to say to you, I don't need you to do anything. Just you sitting here listening to me is all I need. Or you know what? I need help reporting to the police. I'm really scared. Would you come along with me? Mm -hmm. So those small things that we can in our own backyard change before we look at anything else, government bodies, societal norms, systemic issues, I think there needs to be so much change. And change is coming and it's slowly moving and it's moving in the right direction yet so much more needs to be done yeah I think one thing that's been amazing for me in my experience with all my friends and family to see how having an understanding of what I went through and how hard the road of recovery really is that now they are not every not everybody should have to have this in order to have a change of mindset but now they are they never question immediately if someone says they've been abused or they've been sexually assaulted or any of that they're always like they reserve judgment because in their minds i think that they think what if this was my Kendall Ann 
that was telling her story and mm-hmm. she was not believed. Like, how would I feel? And I think mm-hmm. that that's a big thing too, is just the way that we react to strangers' stories, mm-hmm. the way that we react to celebrities' stories, which gets mm-hmm. sensationalized and crazy. But mm-hmm. just to, just if you, you know, if someone is speaking negatively about a victim or a survivor, just to say, well, you don't, you don't know that person and you don't know that relationship. So you might not want to pass judgment on it. Like Mm -hmm. just something like that, just putting the brakes on it. Because when, for me, when I hear even people speak negatively about another victim, even though Mm -hmm. I know I'm believed and I know my truth, it still makes me feel like, (gasps) oh God, what if people Mm -hmm. don't believe me? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I've been out, I wrote a book, I have a podcast, (laughs) I have all of these things. But when, when another victim is not believed or is questioned in an aggressive manner or anything like that, it makes me like uh, 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 about my own truth. And I think that that's something that, that we all can, can do. That's very small. Just if you hear something, just don't pass judgment on it because you don't know the story of the person that you're talking to. I couldn't agree more. And we're talking about being gaslit and also then what can happen is the knock-on is self-gaslighting, mm-hmm. questioning self, and then becoming very doubtful and having a very low self-esteem and low confidence and having a, a sense of self that's been compromised. Mm-hmm. So believing somebody and suspending judgment and those questions can be a gift you can ask questions if and when it feels safe to do so and yet usually what happens in active listening is those questions get answered without you even needing to ask them absolutely so I, I think asking what do you need or asking those two clear questions that you made reference to even if the person's overwhelmed, they can still say, I don't know, and that's okay. You're still holding space for that person. Mm-hmm. So I think we can start really, really small and also in parenting and modelling that. And there's a really important area that I think may be understated and that's the power of men and men who seek therapy and men who do group therapy and men who are very communicative and emotionally intelligent sharing with other men their experiencing their experience or calling out other men's perhaps behavior that they feel is inappropriate but they might just let go to the keeper mm-hmm. it's also just holding a mirror up to their mates their friends Letting another man know, mate, that wouldn't fly in my house. I'm so curious. How does your wife or your partner feel about that? Mm-hmm. What I usually do when I'm triggered and when I'm pissed off is A, B, C, and D. Or I can see you're really angry. Do you need to talk? Or really, really basic things that sadly elude a lot of men because mm-hmm. they don't have that group and they don't have that connection. But when they do, they can thrive. Yeah. So I think it's really important, especially for men, to be able to seek support. And if there are barriers and stigmas around utilising resources or accessing therapy or going to group therapy, 
or even speaking to their mates, that needs to be looked at as well. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you if you are a friend of someone who is saying that they are engaging in toxic or abusive behavior, like you are allowed to question it. You don't, you don't just have to be like, oh, okay, I don't want to cause a problem because you're just deflecting the problem back onto that person's relationship. And you could be saving someone's life. Like, I, I don't think that that gets really ingrained in like male groups enough. Like you could literally save people's lives if you just gently question what the information that you're getting from them. Yeah. And again, it's not attacking or criticizing or judging. It's questioning someone's behavior. It's also asking that person how they feel. It's also coming up with a possible solution to behavior that they may never have thought of as an as an alternative. And you're so right in saying it could save someone's life. Because imagine again, if you rupture that mindset and do change someone's thought process by way of when I leave this party, I'm going to go home and she's going to cop it for saying that. Mm-hmm. You know, what if someone at the barbecue did say, mate, that comment was really inappropriate or I find it offensive? You know, can you tell me a little bit more about the reason that you said that or where's that coming from? Or I've noticed you haven't been yourself lately. What's happening? Mm-hmm. Now, I do this group work and I go to group therapy every week and I really love it. Do you want to join me? Mm-hmm. My mates and I go there and we just shoot the shit and talk and it's excellent. There's a facilitator there and it's a really great environment. Did you want to join me one night? Mm-hmm. We talk about everything that's just happened here at the Barbie. Yeah. It's just opening up that line of communication. And if the person is resistant or rejects them, nothing is lost as a result of just opening up that dialogue. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. So as a society, we need to, number one, there is no perfect victim. So if when you hear that someone was abused or assaulted in some way, you need to change your mindset of judging that person. Number two, you need to stop blaming the victim because the ends don't justify the means or however you want to say it in your mind. Mm. We, since we can't, it's going to take time for us to enact huge societal change. Like we have Mm. to hold each other accountable for that Mm. kind of behavior in our friend groups or in our families. And we really have to think, be mindful of ourselves and how, what our reactions affect not only the people that we're interacting with, but also the people watching those interactions. That's right. We're responsible as a witness, as a bystander. If something doesn't feel right, listen to your body. Absolutely. Act on it. Question. And question, as you said earlier, around the fear of authority. Question the school leaders. Question the policies. Question the legislation. Advocate. Mm -hmm. Speak to your local member. Speak to your Prime Minister. Speak to whoever you possibly can. There is so much power, as corny as this sounds, 
in people, mm-hmm. advocacy, lobbying. It's the parents. It's the voice of the victim. Mm-hmm. That's where the power lies. And so if we collaborate and collectively work together, we can bring about systemic fundamental change. Yeah. We're doing I, so in this podcast. And see, that's one of so. that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this because I just felt like there are millions and millions of people that for whatever reason cannot advocate for themselves for whatever reason and every single reason is valid. But I felt like, okay, I'm gonna try. You know, like, I might fail, but I'm gonna I'm gonna start trying. And it's on all of us to advocate for the people who cannot advocate for themselves. And again, whatever reason they they can't advocate is fine. It is acceptable. It is we and we should honor those and we should respect those reasons. Again, I couldn't agree more. And imagine if you doubted reaching out to me and saying to me, I saw an article mm-hmm. and I just wanted to talk to you about a quote that you made, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be speaking with you. I would never have been able to connect with you and have this wonderful, rich, important, relevant conversation. So that's another example of trying. Mm -hmm. If only we tried. Let's write the letter. Let's send an email. Let's ask the question of authority. Let's support someone who may not be able to support themselves. Let's also use our voice in hope that it does cause someone else to be able to use theirs. Mm-hmm. Let's work together. Mm-hmm. So if you could if you could say anything to a survivor or a victim who is listening to this, who right now is afraid that they are not going to believed beca- be believed because they do not present as perfect or they feel shame or they feel responsibility um, for the abuse that, that they have suffered or are suffering? Like, What would you tell them? Trust yourself. Trust yourself. If you feel ready to disclose, disclose. Mm-hmm. If you feel you're unable to, trust yourself. Unburden yourself and take the pressure off upon your shoulders And when you're ready, you can place them on someone else's, like a clinician's, like a domestic violence liaison officer, Mm -hmm. like a friend, like a family member. One person, it takes one person to bear witness to someone's story and believe them. So self-trust is really important and understanding that If you feel when you're able and ready to use your voice, you will be heard and you will be believed. And if that does not happen, that says so much more about the individual who's listening to your story than what it does you. You know your truth. So trust yourself. I don't want to fly the flag for therapy because it is what I do and it is who I am professionally. Yet many people do speak of the fact that they don't feel comfortable sharing, often with people known to them sometimes, especially in the early stages of ever disclosing their trauma. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of benefit to sharing sometimes with someone who is completely unrelated to the person, who doesn't know the individual, a very unbiased clinician and professional 
who they're able to share their story with, who can sit with them in a space whereby they're looking at them Mm -hmm. in that space as the individual they are. They're not looking at them as their friend, as their partner, as their sister, as their daughter. So there's a lot of power in also seeking support from resources and utilising support groups and therapists and group work. Yet again, I go back to trusting self. If that doesn't feel right for the person, go back to how does it feel within the body? How does it feel for me? Mm-hmm. Can I move toward this? When I move toward it, does my anxiety dissipate or does it escalate? Mm-hmm. Trusting self. Do I get triggered when I withdraw from that? Is this safe for me? Yeah. And if you're ever wondering, like, oh, will I ever be able to find someone that will believe me? We we can, we are a testament to, we are literally on the other sides of the globe. <laughs> we are opposite side. <laughs> so and you'll be this. You'll be able, we are we are everywhere. People who are here to support you and love you and believe you and help you. We are everywhere in the globe to help you. Uh, of course, and statistics back that up. Statistics yeah. back that up. In Australia, we've got on average one woman a week being murdered by their current oh, or former partner. We have one in three who have experienced physical violence since 15 years of age. We have one in five who have experienced sexual violence since the age of 15. So if we have those statistics already, when we do disclose, if we choose to disclose on our terms, when we feel safe and secure, it can be looked upon as one in three, one in five may also have a shared lived experience. Mm-hmm. Always different, always subjective, yet you may find someone else who will reciprocate in that openness and sharing of, do you know what, I'm so glad you opened up today because I've experienced something similar to what you're saying, not taking away from your story. I thought it was just me. Yeah, you are not alone. We're all over the globe where we've experienced it and we're here to support you. And we're interconnected and we're interdependent. So we need to be able to come together. But again, in our own time, if that's what we choose for ourselves, because that's not for everybody. No, it's not. It's not. Well, thank you so much for being here, Julie. I can't wait to have you back. Um, Whenever you want to come back, come on back. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. It was so wonderful to have met you, and I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. And I'll um, link all of your socials um, in the show notes so people can connect with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Julie. Thank you again, Julie Sweet, for being on the show. I learned a ton, um, and it was a really great conversation for us to have. If you are in Australia and you are experiencing violence or abuse, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Family and Domestic Violence Counseling Line. That number is 1-800-RESPECT. Again, that number is 1-800-737-732. If you are in the United States of America and you are in an abusive or violent relationship, there is help available. Please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 
799-799-7233. Again, that number is 1-800-799-SAFE.